Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. As the foundational text of the Oral Torah in Judaism, the Mishnah is generally analyzed to understand Jewish law and the workings of the halakhic system. But Yaakov Nagin, in looking at over 200 Mishnayot, identifies fascinating literary devices employed by the sages to convey a deeper meaning, even the Mishnah's inner spirit. Join us as we talk with Yaakov Nagin about his work, The Soul of the Mishnah, You're listening to New Books and Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Yaakov Nagin is a senior rabbi at the Othniel Yeshiva in Israel, where he teaches Talmud, Halakha, Jewish thought, and Kabbalah. He also serves as director of Or Torah Stone's Beit Midrash for Judaism and Humanity. He received his rabbinical ordination from RIETS at Yeshiva University and holds a PhD in Jewish philosophy from Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He is also the author of Be, Become, Bless, Jewish Spirituality Between East and West. Yaakov, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Well, thank you for having me. Yaakov, before we get to know you and talk about your book, The Soul of the Mishnah, it may be helpful to begin with the Mishnah itself. For those who are not familiar with it, would you explain what the Mishnah is and its foundational role in Judaism? Certainly. Um, Jews are often known as the people of the book. But for centuries, the book meant the Bible. Whereas Jewish tradition believes we always had an oral interpretation of the Bible, but that was always kept oral. In about the second century, the leader of the Jewish people, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, for the first time turned into writing the um, this oral tradition. Um, it's, there are six to three parts to it, and it goes through every aspect of Jewish um, law and practice. But what's so unique and fascinating about this book is that he doesn't tell you yes or no what to do. It is each one of the more than 5,000 Mishnayot is, brings a number of opinions. So you can't get a straight answer. And I think this is very fundamental to the Jewish mindset and dialogue, that it isn't one way of looking at things. It's always, um, it's a multiple way of looking at things, which I think leads to a lot of creativity. There's an adage that two Jews, three opinions, one heart. And I think that's what the Mishnah is all about. Now, please tell us more about yourself and how and why you came to focus your writing on the Mishnah. Certainly. Um, um, well, I, I, I grew up on the west side of Manhattan, um, but ultimately fulfilled the dream to move to the land of Israel, where I live today with my wife and seven children. And um, usually, as most Jews, I focused on the Talmud. The Talmud is an expans- expansive discussion, um, which is starting point is the Mishnah, but it goes far beyond that. And, um, and, and, and rabbinic training really focuses on the Talmud. Um, and the Mishnah becomes more as a means to an end, a starting point, and the discussion is, is, takes place in the Talmud itself. But, I, um, but one day I entered a classroom 
and somebody who's a pioneer in the study of Mishnah, his name is Rabbi Wolfish, um, took this chapter that on first glance would seem a bit dry and boring. And suddenly, there was so much between the lines. I was able to realize that there's great meaning and significance in this work, which was overpassed by the Talmud. And I feel by, by reclaiming it is to look at it as a, as a world in its own. The Medjur says, this is, this is the iron pillar of the oral Torah. And I feel it gives us, if we ask the right questions, if we say, what's this telling us? What is the meaning of what it's saying here? If we ask the right questions, it will take us to places we never imagined. And I feel there's something more formative about the Mishnah in terms of it's very close to when the ideas themselves were formed. So there's something more dynamic and alive in it. It's very short. That's why it's misleading, because if you don't pick the cue on word plays, on a dialogue with biblical texts, you're going to miss, you might get the facts, but you're not going to get to the meaning of the facts. So it's some type of a minimalism. It's almost like a um, mystery novel to uncover with a word here, a word there, some deeper significance and meaning. So I'm happy to bring to an English audience the soul of Mishnah, um, the book is even called The Soul of Mishnah because the great Jewish scholar of halacha, of practice, um, Rabbi Yosef Kara, wrote the, the book called The Shulchan Aruch. He was a mystic and he would meditate uh, reciting Mish, Mishnah. And he had a um, experience of, of a higher spiritual being that addressed him, referring to itself as the soul of the Mishnah. So those are some mystical aspects of this book. The Zohar, the classical um, work of Jewish mysticism, says that in the biblical story in Eden, when God um, says he will make, make a helpmate for Adam, the Zohar says, who is this helpmate? This is the Mishnah. So I think it's even by Jews have forgotten why this is such an important book. Maybe just end with a, a quote of Marcel Proust, um, who says that the challenge of life is not in discovering new lands, but in seeing the old ones with new eyes. And for most Jews, Mishnah is a very um, familiar text, but the new eyes is what I'm hoping to give to people. Your book opens with a series of rich and meditative essays on tractate Berakot and the recitation of the Shema. As an example of your approach and teaching, would you rehearse for us some of the ideas you developed there? And certainly, and this is a good example why things that at first glance are, could be technical, if you ask the right questions, become very significant. Um, the Shema is um, the prayer of faith and commitment said by Jews twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. And the Mishnah defines what are the right time to say it. So it could be left as, as, as facts, but it, we could also ask, what are these telling us? In fact, we could discover that the mission is telling us something about who we are. For example, in the morning, it says that um, the Bible says Mishnah is the time that we get up in the morning. But the Mishnah says, um, one opinion, I said already, there's always multiple opinions. One opinion is, okay, so by sunrise, you got to say the Mishnah, you have to say the Shema. But the other opinion, which was ultimately accepted, is that we have till three hours after sunrise. And so, and people know that this is the law. 
But there's a reason for that. It says because the children of kings wake up late. They wake up three hours in the day. Now, some of the commentaries say, wait a second. That's statistically insignificant when children of kings wake up. I should look at the average person. But I feel by looking at other places in the Mishnah is that this is telling us something about who we are. We accept the kingdomhood of God. God is king by saying Shema. But the Mishnah elsewhere says that the Jewish people look at themselves as children of the king. Based on the Bible that's, um, that says, or as we said by Rabbi Akiva in the Mishnah, blessed, is, beloved is, is Israel who are called children of God. Um, doesn't exclude other people. They're in the leave, story of the leaving of Egypt, it says that the Jewish people are called the firstborn of God, meaning that there are many, many children. So God has a very big family, but the feeling of that we stand in front of God as a king, which can be very intimidating, but to say, yes, he is a king, but he's also my father. And I make this, uh, I add an anecdote of his child on the seashore. He's waving out this big ocean liner. And someone says, who are you waving to? I said, I'm waving to the captain. And then the person says, well, why do you think the captain is looking at this little kid standing on the seashore? And the child says, I know he's looking at me because the captain of the ship is my father. So we stand in front of God. We accept him as our king. But also he, we remember that he's also our father. The, for the night, the Mishnah tells us that the time to say Shema is a time that in the time of the temple, the priests would enter um, to eat the truma, which is some sacred food. By telling us that Everyone's to say Shema at the same time that once the priests enter is also saying something about us, that the priests are high, are our role models. The fact their practices of, of eating with every detail being of great concern is a model for ourselves. We also should, be, before eating, accept, say the Shema, and this can make our eating to a sacred rite. Whereas the Mishnah says in Pirkei Avot, the Mishnah says that those who speak words of Torah on their meal, it's as if they're eating a feast in front, of, in front of the king. Okay, so we've learned who we are and not only what we're supposed to do. To take a second example related to Tractate Sukkah, you have a profound essay called The Water Libation as the Waters of Eden. Could you explain this notion for us? Well, first I'll mention that my doctorate in Hebrew University in Jewish philosophy is actually about the Jewish holiday of Sukkot. And we know that Sukkot is a very universal holiday. I, I live not far from Jerusalem, and I know on Sukkot from all countries of the world, world, we have Gentiles, primarily Christians, who come to a special parade in honor of Jerusalem wearing their um, ethnic clothing um, because of the prophecies in the book of Zechariah about in the end of days, the nations of the world coming to celebrate the holiday of Sukkot. Now, one reason, the cosmological aspect of Sukkot. On the Jewish calendar, um, Sukkot is the beginning of the year and the end of the year. Although Jews celebrate Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the year, at the beginning of that month, uh, what's the month of Tishrei, but the Bible itself doesn't designate that day as the beginning of the year. Rather, when it's talking about Sukkot, they talk about it as the year, the time that the year goes out or the end of the year. And in a year, the beginning and the end are connected to one another because a year is a circle. 
So Sukkot is connected to the beginning of time and the end of time. And we know in the Bible, the beginning of time begins in a world, an ideal world of Eden, filled with nature, filled with water, filled with the presence of the divine. And the biblical prophecies of the end of time in, in Yechezkel, in, um, in Zechariah, also talk about a, a future of beautiful nature, water, and in the divine. So at the beginning of time and the end of time. And so Sukkot is that critical cosmological time. That's why Solomon, for example, waited till the holiday of Sukkot. In the book of Kings, it says he waited till Sukkot to dedicate the temple because um, he wanted to be in this cosmic time. I believe that the holiday of Sukkot is for us to connect once a year in the present to this cosmic time of the past and of the future. Sukkot very much is a return to nature. Even now, Jews on Sukkot, they take the four species, the lulav, the etrog, the rava, and the hadas, represents different types of vegetation, beautiful vegetation, and pray together with nature. Jews leave their homes and live in a sukkah, where the sukkah, the, 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 the main part of the sukkah, the roof, called the schach, has to be made of things out of nature and cannot have human intervention and changing them from their natural form. But the highlight of this was in the temple. In the temple, they would take water from the spring of the Shiloh, the same spring that the kings of Israel would always be anointed there. They would take the water out of the spring, and spring water in Judaism is called living water because spring water moves. They would take the living water from the spring, bring it to the um, the mizbeach, the, the, the altar, I guess, um, and they would pour it onto the altar. And I see this as, the, as a reenactment of the story of Eden. In Eden, it says that water came out of the earth to water the grounds. So we're taking the water out of the earth, and then we're watering the ground of the altar, which is called the ground altar in Hebrew, the Mizbech Adama. Afterwards, they would they would they would go around in circles around the altar, um, carrying the four species and also putting enormous aravot, this green vegetation. Where in the story of Eden, it tells that after watering the ground, about all the vegetation that comes out. There's and the Talmud says that that bring this water to the altar was asking for God's blessings to bring water throughout the world, which also like Eden, the garden goes out for four different heads throughout the world. So this is connecting to the story of Eden. It's connecting to the future and maybe even hinting to the creation of humanity itself, because it's the word used in Hebrew for the snouts to put the water in the same word as nose and the same. And the Bible tells that God, created Adam by taking Adama, earth, the Medrash adds, mixing it with water, and then blowing in the breath of life. So I feel we're a reenactment of this cosmic creation in a hope to restore the world to the way it should be and realize these prophecies of the future. Yaakov, are there any other connections, themes, or lessons you'd like to share? Well, thank you for the question. I feel one challenging issue for many religions that are often very male-centered is engaging women more in our, um, in our religiosity. 
And I think certainly we'd be much more blessed if we get the other half of humanity as bigger and bigger partners with us. Um, so one thing I tell about is the Mishnah teaches us that on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, that the daughters of Jerusalem would dance in the vineyards. Now, often this part of the dance, they would also call out to the single men and, and suggest to them to marry a God-fearing woman. But, but the Mishnah, I feel there's even, as, as important as that is, I think there's even some added elements. The Mishnah says that this is what makes Yom Kippur, and there's a second date, which is also took place to be so special. And Yom Kippur, this is the great day of the high priest enters the, 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 the inner part of the temple. And to say that what really counts on this day is these daughters of Jerusalem dancing, this is certainly quite surprising. Um, so through the Mishnah, which is the source, our only source for this, for this dance, um, if you look closely, the women are all wearing, says they have to wear white clothing which is exactly what the, the high priest would wear. It says that the woman's clothes would have to take them to a mikvah, a Jewish ritual purity bath that would to create purity to clothing, just as the high priest would be. Now it says that when the high priest would enter the inner sanctuary, there were two cherubs on the ark. And one would be like a, a man and one like a woman to represent the great love of, of the Jewish people and God, like a love of a, a man and woman as in the book of Song of Songs in the Bible, that uses as an allegory the love between a man and woman to describe the great, the, great, the great love between the Jewish people and God. Now, what I feel is what's happening is the high priest on Yom Kippur enters the inner sanctuary where they have these two cherubs, and he's, he is representing all of us uh, on this day of deep intimacy and connection. But just like in the Song of Songs, the, the figure used to represent the Jewish people is the woman in, this, in the songs. And not only that, on a number of times, they, they refer to the daughters of Jerusalem. So that being the case, I see this dance as primarily being a sacred dance by the daughters of Jerusalem to actualize the Song of Songs. Song of Songs is not only a poem, but we're making it into a dance. And by doing that, they are dressed up the same white clothing as the priests. It goes to a mikvah, just like the priests, um, all he uses. And they are dancing in front of God, representing us and fulfilling Shira Shirim. So I find it very moving in what's often a, a male-focused religion um, in some ways, more and more to see what important roles women play and to say that the holiest day of the Jewish year, what captured the spirit of the day would be the woman dancing. There's even another element there because in Jewish tradition, in the Mishnah, it says that Moses says the 17th day of the month of Tammuz is a Jewish fast day in mourning. That's when, according to Jewish tradition, Moses came down from Sinai with the, um, the two tablets and he saw the children of Israel sinning with the calf. And he, he broke it. And the Jewish tradition sees that Yom Kippur is a day of, of repentance because this is the day that Moses got the second tablets. Now, in the first time, the Bible says that Moses sees the, Jewish, the, the children of Israel dancing to idolatry. 
So here on Yom Kippur, we have a dance, not for idolatry, but dance in, in honor of God. And it also says Moses saw um, the people in that dance for idolatry. The Hebrew word is mitzachek, which is a euphemism for different forms of sexual immorality. So here the women are dancing and in it, they turn to the single men and, 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 say, and say, choose a wife who is a God-fearing woman, a verse from the book of, of uh, Proverbs. How about sharing one more with us? So maybe, maybe I'll share one more, and this involves with some of my work in other areas. Thinking about the, uh, for me, the essence of Zionism is saying the Jewish people must be active partners in God in fulfilling the vision of the future for humanity. One part of that was the return to Zion, and we see there was being active that let that take place. Now, another aspect of that vision is I see as humanity together calling in the name of God and serving God. And so I'm a big um, promoter of interfaith discussion and dialogue. And I know that tremendous strides have been made in the Jewish-Christian connection, certainly since the Holocaust, both in both with Catholicism and Protestantism. And part of my hope is that not only that process continue, but also bring um, Islam and Muslims into this vision to realize that using our beliefs in God should connect us and not divide us. And this is what really God wants. And that's be always what we're asking ourselves, what does God want from us? So I want um, part of this journey. I went to Egypt to different um, and among other places to Al-Azhar, which is the primary university of Islam. And, and one thing that I took with me as a, as a starting point for discussion, again, was one of, was a Mishnah, because the Mishnah in discussing the crime, terrible crime of murder, also talks about how valuable each human life is. And the Mishnah tell, gives us four reasons for why God chose to create one person at the beginning of the world. The first maybe the most famous is because every person is a world. Uh, by, by the world beginning with one person, it teaches us a person is a world. To save a person is saving a world. To God forbid, destroy a person is destroying a world. And this is one topic I brought because in fact, the Quran quotes this as something that God said to, to the children of Israel. Um, so some point of connection and also connection about talking about the sacredness of human life. The Mishnah also continues by saying that it also is our, brings peace into the world and against racism, because you can't say that my father is bigger than your father because we all have the same ancestor. Number three, the Mishnah says, tells us about our common divi- divine belief, because in the ancient world, people believed that there were many gods up there and every nation had their own god. But the humanity began with one person. That means there really can only be one God. And finally, the fourth is about individuality. After saying that we all have one ancestor, it doesn't mean that we're the same. It, it, teach, um, it says that the greatness of God is usually if you make one mold, everything comes out the same. But God created one person, Adam. And from that one person, every, every person who's come out is unique. Nobody is like me. Nobody is like you. And therefore, the mission concludes, 
everyone could say, for me, the world was created. So part of, as I felt these teach, I feel in religiosity, part of the most important teachings are not just about God. It's about humanity. I feel the, the, ideas, the ideas of the Bible, first, are being created in the, each of us in the image of God. Second, our common ancestor. And third, I see being children of God. These are the basis for really building the way things should be between us. And maybe I'll end with a story on that trip to Egypt. I was at the University of Fayom, and there was a blind professor who was deeply moved to hear that there were Jewish visitors from Israel. And he told the following story. He said that once somebody went to the Halif, like the ruler in the, in the Arab world, and announced himself as the brother of the Halif. Khalif. And the Khalif looks at him and, and can't recognize him. So he says, are you my brother through my mother? He said, no. Are you my brother through my father? Again, no. Uh, oh, you must be mean that you're my brother in Islam. He says, I'm not a Muslim. By now, the Khalif is getting angry and says, so why did you say you're my brother? He says, I am my brother because we are all children of Adam. And the Khalif says, yes, you are right. And to show the world this truth, I will teach you, treat you as my brother. So these are the messages we all need. And hopefully in this light, we can fulfill the hope of the great Italian rabbi, Rabbi Elio Benamosei, who interpreted the closing verse of the book of Malachi, which is the last verse of the book of prophets, of that Elijah is coming to link the, the hearts of the of the fathers to the sons and the sons to the fathers, hoping that in the future, there'll be a reconciliation of Judaism, the older religion and the religions that sprung out of Judaism. So these are like the fathers and the sons. And this is the vision of the world that we're trying to work towards. It'd be nice, Yaakov, to close our talk with the moving story that opens your book. Would you share that story of Devere's final Mishnah with us? Yes, please. Um, thank you for the, for the opportunity. Um, in 2008, after several years of constant missile attacks against Israel, finally, um, Israel launched a can- campaign to, um, to stop the missile attacks. And the first Israeli soldier who fell in combat was a boy called Devir Amanuelov. Um, I never met him, but it was a moving story because his father had a year before that, and he was exempt from combat, but nevertheless insisted to serve to help defend his people. But after the war, his mother calls me and tells me, there's something I have to tell you. And she says that after Devere's father died, the Hebrew version of my book, The Soul of Mishnah, came out, and they decided in memory of his father, they should study together um, this book, the Hebrew letters for, for Mishnah spell the word Nishama, soul. I mean, that's what's called the soul of Mishnah. And then she says, do you know what the last Mishnah that we studied together? And there, in 70 chapters, there are about 200 Mishnayot. But somehow, without even thinking, I knew what she would tell me. The last Mishnah they studied was the Mishnah um, that talks about the responsibilities of the father for the son, the son for the father, parents and children, which I argue is a is dialoguing with that closing verse, return of uh, returning the hearts of the fathers to the sons, the hearts of the sons to the father, which of course was the essence 
of that study of the Vir and his mother in memory of his father and his connection with his mother, that this was the last um, connection they had before he fell in combat. That is moving. Before we let you go, are there any other projects you're working on that you can tell us about? Um, okay, well, thank you. Um, thank you also for that question. Um, one thing I'll mention is um, I work a lot about Jewish spirituality in general. And and because I feel often spirituality that so much teaches, touches on the greatest needs and aspirations are something very um, common to all of us. And um, I have one book, which is in Chinese, in Italian, because really the hope is that is that by, I think by sharing, by sharing our blessings, by sharing our knowledge, this is really the best way for different religions and different people to connect. Let's learn how to serve God and be better people from one another. This is really about how we connect to one another. So I see as part of my interfaith work is not just talking about let's get along together, but learning from others and giving to others. So in part of that context, I'm trying to often thinking about what is it in Judaism that can be meaningful for, um, for people even outside and not merely part of an inner closed discussion? So that's something I'd like to continue working on in future years. Yaakov, thank you for being with us and sharing your time generously. Thank you, Michael. It was a pleasure to be with you today. Friends, you've been listening to New Books and Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.